Well, thank you uh, very much, Pastor Mark. Uh, you know, Pastor Mark and I, we uh, frequently struggle to come up with uh, topics to preach. Well, maybe he has an easier time. I don't have that easy of a time. I was struggling with it actually this week, earlier this week. Uh, uh, usually I preach on one of our uh, C.S. Lewis Fellows topics, and, and the topic for this month was the seven deadly sins. And somehow in the back of my mind, I just said, I can't preach that during Advent season. It's just not appropriate, you know? So uh, earlier this week, you know, uh, I, was, as I, I was struggling what to preach with, uh, we received, Pastor Mark and Elder Tony received a letter from a dear couple, uh, a couple of our international friends, Nick and Rainey Parrish, if you're listening, guys, uh, your email that came to us earlier this week is like a word that's fitly spoken, like apples and in, in, in settings of gold and silver. That's the way uh, that email came, and they write, you guys are on our minds. We recently read that one out of 15 Chicagoans had COVID. May God keep you all safe during this time. A short update from, from Nick and Rainey. Our city has been under severe lockdown, and they, they minister in a city called Yangon, um, Myanmar. Our city has been under severe lockdowns for the majority of the past few months as the medical system here, being one of the worst in the world, struggles to keep up with the virus. Unfortunately, Rainey has become quite sick. It is not COVID, and we're not yet sure the cause of the illness. Doctors are continuing to try and help us find the source, but we'd appreciate your prayers as she struggles to get better. With Lottie Moon season approaching, we wanted to send you a couple of resources to the church from our family and team. A short video about our team and the work that we do here in Yang Yangon, Myanmar, and we'll show that clip in, uh, uh, towards the end of the message. We miss you guys and are continually grateful, continually grateful for UBC and your role in our lives. Will you please join me in praying for Nick and Rainey Parish right now? Heavenly Father, your prophet Isaiah tells us that we need not fear because you're with us. Do not be dismayed. You are our God. So we pray that you would come alongside our brother and our sister Nick and Rainey Parish right now and their entire team in Yangon, Myanmar as they are on shutdown. We pray that you would walk alongside of them, that you would help them, Lord, that you would undergird them with your righteous right hand, as you said in Isaiah 41.10. And we pray, Jehovah Rapha, that you would touch our sister Rainy right now. Lord, we don't know what the cause of this illness that she's going through, but you do because you know the very hairs on her head. And so we ask humbly that you, Jehovah Rapha, would just speak a word. We know that's how powerful you are. You can simply speak the word and she would be healed. Nevertheless, not our will, but your will 
be done. We pray that you would give her strength, you would sustain her with your everlasting arms, because your grace is sufficient. We pray for the parish and their children. We pray that you'd put a hedge of protection around their team during this time. And all of our international missionaries around the globe, we pray that you'd put a hedge of protection around them, Lord, as they seek to continue to spread the gospel during this pandemic. That your gospel would continue to go forth in ways, through channels, that we've never even imagined before could be possible. And that the gospel would reach hearts of men, women, and children. We pray for this message, that the word would go forth and accomplish the purpose for which you send it. We pray for fertile hearts, fertile soil, that uh, they would be receptive to hear and to obey what your word has to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I'd like to focus our attention on the meaning of one of UBC's core pillars. It's that last one over there to, to, my, to, to my left and, and your right. The core pillar of mission. First, it is only the church that the Lord Jesus used to describe as the ecclesia or the called out ones that can do missions because the church is first committed to his mission. Knowing the biblical theological foundations of missions is critical for missionaries, for the churches who send and support them. We need to know who our missionaries are, what missionaries do, why we must send missionaries, and how the church can help them succeed. Perhaps the most important single verse in the Word of God for God's people today, in terms of what the end times mean and the signs of Christ's coming, there is, there is not a more important single verse than this. I argue, is in Matthew 24, 14, where Christ said the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In this verse, Jesus answers the question that was and is on everybody's mind. When will the end be? When will the end be? Well, earlier in the same chapter, Jesus had foretold of the temple's destruction in Jerusalem. Earlier in the chapter, Matthew 24, 3, his disciples asked Jesus, Tell us, Lord, when will this be, and what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples expected this current age to end with the return of Christ in power and glory to usher in the age to come. Our text is the clearest statement in God's Word about the time of the Lord Jesus' second coming. Jesus answered their question by describing a series of events that will occur until he returns. And these signs, these series of events, are not for the faint of heart, okay? There will be wars, famines, and earthquakes. 
There will be continued hostility towards the gospel and towards his people. False religions and false messiahs leading many astray. Persecution and martyrdom of believers. Intense suffering in the church and in the world. And the love of many will grow cold. We can check off everything on that list as having already occurred and are occurring right now. Until we get to verse 14 when Jesus concludes, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Today, that's what you would call a mic drop moment. Mic drop. A showstopper. There's no better exposition of verse 14 than George Eldon Ladd's classic work on the gospel of the kingdom. George Eldon Ladd finds three things in this one verse, Matthew 24, 14. He finds the message, the mission, and the motive. The message is the gospel of the kingdom, this good news about the kingdom of God. The good news is that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and raised from the dead according to the scriptures, and he resurrected. The good news is that through his redemptive work on the cross, Jesus Christ has defeated death, sin, and Satan. God's grace, God's grace, according to 2 Timothy 1.10, God's grace has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And in 1 Corinthians 15.24-26, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he, Jesus, has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In both instances, the Greek word for the word destroyed means to completely defeat, render powerless, or to put out of action the forces of death, sin, and Satan. That is the message of the kingdom. Now the present mission is for the church to carry that message unto all the world. Jesus' mission of redemption was for God's kingdom to be enacted among all peoples. Jesus' obedience through his suffering and death at the hands of sinful man was the prerequisite to him bringing salvation, bringing God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49.6 You don't have to think too deeply to notice the close connection between Matthew 24 14, and the Great Commission. There's a direct connection. At his ascension, the Lord commissioned his disciples. You all can say this from memory. Go, therefore, well, first of all, all power has been given to me. All power has been given to me. You go, therefore, and make disciples 
of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age, the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. The same Jesus who spoke those words over 2,000 years ago still speaks to us today. We are to evangelize the world until the end of the age. Regardless of what Rob Bell may have to say. That is our task. Our Lord's commission constrains us to be faithful to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Beginning, of course, in our own neighborhoods. People living across the street from us. Next door to us. I'm thinking of this morning of the Korean family who live right across the street from us. And I, I dropped a, you know, she comes out and smokes every day and sits on the stairs and smoke. And uh, I just happened to, you know, pull out a copy of, uh, of uh, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life and, and, and gave it to her. It's just that simple. You know, give somebody a book, give somebody a track, say, you know, say something, say anything. But if we just stop here in Uptown or in Chicago, then we've not finished the task. As the late John Stott wrote, the true universalism of the Bible is the call to universal evangelism in obedience to Christ's universal commission. It is the conviction not that all peoples will be saved in the end. It is the conviction that not all peoples will be saved in the end, but that all peoples must hear the gospel of salvation before the end, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, in order that they may have a chance to believe and be saved, Romans 10, 13 to 15. Now, I don't know why he chose people like us, redeemed, fallen people, to carry out his purpose in history. Your guess is good as good as mine. He could have done it himself. He could send a host of angels to do it. But he did not. He chose us. Somebody told me one time, well, God's going to send an angel at the end time and he'll evangelize so the world will hear so that's great. We're just going to wait until that angel comes and let everybody who dies go to hell, right? That's real love for your neighbor, isn't it? He chose us. He gave us this mission. If Mark 24, 14 is our mission, then Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is our purpose statement. It's the reason why Uptown Baptist Church and every church of the Lord Jesus Christ even exists. The end of verse 14 tells us what we should watch for and work towards in this age as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. At the inaugural Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization in 1974, Dr. Ralph Winter dropped a bombshell on the worldwide church at the time when he clarified for us that the scriptural references to nations in Matthew actually refers to panta ta ethne, 
or people groups, not physical, geographical countries, as the church had assumed up to that point. Jesus says that before the end comes, there will be a witness to all the nations. Well, the nations Jesus was referring to there are not countries. They're not nation-states. The wording he chose, the, the Greek word ethne, where we get the word ethnic, points to the ethnicities, the languages, the extended families which constitute all the peoples of the earth. Who are these peoples? Jesus did not provide a listing of peoples. He didn't just give us a list of 8,000 peoples so we can just check them off. He did, he did not define the idea of peoples with precision, okay? With a lot of detail. He didn't tell us when the goal would even be met. What is clear is that the mission has not been fulfilled, even in our day. And so the Lord Jesus cannot come until that mission is fulfilled. In North America alone, we know we still have 200, over 250 million people who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the last frontier refers to the 7,300 people groups in our world who have little or no access to the gospel. That's about 4.6 billion people, and they make up more than one half of the 12,000 people groups that make up the entire human race. 70% of the world needs to receive the gospel message orally. In other words, they don't have a written language, folks. They speak orally to really understand the gospel. But we, we tend to minister with a literate approach. So less than 10% have complete Bible translations in their language. And we know that the true life comes from the Word of God. 2 Timothy 4.2 what matters most is that is not that the peoples can be definitively identified and counted, but that God has given us a task that has not but can be completed. By witness, Jesus meant that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in open view throughout entire communities. When Jesus said that we were to be witnesses in the entire world, he was referring to the world of people wherever they can be found. That could be people we can reach out to without even leaving our homes. They could be people in our own family. They could be people of our own culture, but who live further away. They could be people of other cultures and languages living among us. Then they could be far away peoples of other cultures and languages. And Jesus wants us to simultaneously witness to each of these people groups, whether they be near or far away. So in Matthew 24, 14, we not only get a sense of the urgency that Jesus was communicating, we also have an idea of closure. There is closure, okay? It's not an open-ended task. It's clo there's closure. That simply refers to the idea of finishing, okay? It's what we call closing, closing out a game, right, Grace? Which the Bears have problems in doing, okay? We're talking about closing out games here, finishing. 
Our essential mission task is to make disciples in every people group. And it's a completable task. In fact, it was one of the only tasks given to God's people that, have a, that can be completed. There's a completable dimension to this task. Matthew 24, 14 makes it clear that we must make it our first priority to see that every people has a living testimony of the gospel of the kingdom. At the end of all things, the Lord Jesus will have bought and brought people from every tribe and tongue to honor the Father. It's no surprise then to see how his every move was part of pressing the story of God's glory towards its culmination for all the nations. Jesus' vision of redemption was for God's kingdom to be enacted among all peoples. Jesus' obedience through his suffering and death at the hands of sinful man was the prerequisite to him bringing God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49, 6. Christ is the obedient servant that Isaiah wrote about who fulfilled God's will and plan of bringing his glory to the ends of the earth, a task which the physical peoples of Israel failed to do in their idolatry. As a result of Jesus' personal suffering and death, many will be justified who put their faith in him, and all the nations will be sprinkled with blessing, according to Isaiah 52, 14 to 15. Through the Lord Jesus, God shows his glory to people groups throughout the earth. He reveals who he is, what he has done, in order that people may give him glory in loving worship. God reveals glory to all nations in order that he might receive glory from people through worship. What is the end of man? To give God the ultimate glory. That's the Westminster Catechism. And he is doing this in our day. God's mission to bring light to the nations is being fulfilled by his church. That's you and me. And in Acts 13, 47, Paul said, For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul was saying that because of the stubbornness of the Jews and their refusal to play their God-given role. It is he and Barnabas who actually were doing the work of the servant here, mentioned in Isaiah 49, 6. So I want to spend the rest of this message focused on Acts 13 because it is here that we find the model on how outreach or missions grew out of the local church rather than just being an add-on activity. And as the, the verses come up on the slide here, Acts 13, 1 to 3, you can read it with me. It was in, the, in Antioch where the disciples were first called Christians. And the church there gained renown for its witness to the Gentiles in its own community. It was in the Antioch church that Paul and Barnabas were called and commissioned to participate in a wider mission to take the gospel beyond the borders of Syria. 
Let's read it together. Verse 1. Now in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse 3. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. First, Paul and Barnabas received their call in their church, in their local church, not at a missions conference somewhere. And as great as it was for Pastor Allen and myself and Elder Tony to send off Nick and Rainey Parish, uh, we were at the, the uh, SBC, the Southern Baptist uh, Convention annual meeting uh, a couple of years ago in Dallas, and we, you know, we had that privilege of just laying on, their, laying on our hands on them and sending them off. To, to Myanmar. But make no mistake about it, Nick and Rainey Parish received their calling right here at Uptown Baptist Church, not at some missions conference. It was a diverse church, Antioch was, just like, uh, just like ours here in Uptown. Antioch's majority population were Gentile, but it also had a sizable population of Greek-speaking Jews. We even see Africans mentioned in verse 1. That's Lucius from Niger. We also see the Holy Spirit speaking to his saints during an extended time of worship, prayer, and fasting. Finally, the church at Antioch commissioned Paul and Barnabas by laying hands on them to visibly show their support and provide a physical indication of imparting the Holy Spirit's power to them. So in Antioch, we see a church that understood that mission was part of her DNA. So mission is also part of our DNA here at Uptown Baptist Church. And the missionaries, they were sending out, were not just people the church was financially supporting, like they were charity cases. These are not charity cases. But the missionaries were a part of their spiritual family with whom they have a relationship and responsibility to pray for and to support. And so we have a responsibility to pray for and support and to labor alongside with our international friends. Missions is not just sitting back and waiting for our missionaries to come and give their latest report and just writing them a check. Missions is what we at UBC do through our missionaries and our international friends. When our missionaries come home to visit on their sabbaticals, we try our best to make them feel at home. I feed them all the barbecue that they can eat. I get them <laughs> the best food that we can get them here in Uptown. Because half of them consider UBC as their sending church we do have a special responsibility for their spiritual growth and ministries. It's not just about us sending a check every month. I mean, who can forget the harrowing journey 
that David Kowatsky told us a couple of weeks ago about his escape from the Far East. Or Pastor Mark, I mean, we can remember walking alongside our missionaries, Ross and Shirley Mackin, through some of those Thai Karat villages that they carry such a heavy burden for, and they continue to pray for successors who will come and take on that work. It's not just about sending a check. So we have our mission in Mark 24, 14. We have our purpose statement in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Our overarching goal is to present the gospel of Jesus Christ and make disciples of the unreached and underserved people groups without regard to any geographical limitations. We will go as far as the Lord will send us. And in order for all of us to really identify and connect with this mission, it doesn't start with a committee. It doesn't start with any missions committee. It starts with intercessory prayer on our knees. Jesus commanded us to pray for laborers for the harvest in Matthew 9, 37 to 38. He told us that we should always pray and not lose heart in Luke 18, 1 to 8. The early church prayed for evangelistic boldness in the face of persecution in Acts 4.29. You, you, serving as a partner in prayer, is the vital link between this church and our international friends. Paul writes this to the church in Philippi. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. And he requested prayer for his own evangelistic witness in Ephesians 6.18-19. We can do no less. Apart from Jesus, we know we can do nothing. John 15, 5. Therefore, intercessory prayer must be central to all our planning. Pastor Mark, we've got to pray for more of our international fre uh, friends in these nightly prayer meetings, brother. That's, that's where we've fallen short. We need, to we need to pick up the slack. This includes praying diligently ourselves, recruiting others to pray for our missionaries and their work and training new believers to pray. It also includes giving thanks to God for as many answers to our prayers. And Lord willing, we still have plans to visit all of our missionary families on the field who consider us their sending church so they don't feel disconnected and isolated and alienated. <clears throat> so the mission strategy that we take here at UBC is the combination of evangelism and compassion ministries. We don't have anything to boast about here at UBC except in the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 9.24. The scriptures have not changed. God still cares for the widows, the orphans, and the aliens in our societies. And as Christians, we can do no less. We too 
must care for the suffering of human beings, especially their eternal suffering. John Piper contends that there are two truths, two truths that have always been in tension historically in church, in the church, in church history. First, when the gospel takes truth in our hearts, it goes outward to alleviate human suffering. And secondly, when the gospel takes roots in our souls, it wakes us up to the reality of an eternal hell, an eternal fire. And everyone who is united to Christ receives eternal life. That's the second truth. Hence, Christians should care about all suffering, all human suffering, especially eternal suffering. According to Piper, Christ is calling the church to pull these two fundamental truths together. Finally, in order to support the foundation pillar of our mission, God's people need to sacrifice and give to send and support our missionaries on the front lines so that they have all the resources that they need for the task. Resources include the gifts, skills, and talents of laborers on the field who still need to be trained, led, supported, and nurtured every day. Our giving to the Lottie Moon Missions offering in December also provides the physical resources such as money and property, facilities, which our International Missions Board has an obligation to steward with transparent integrity, using those resources with maximum effectiveness and with compassion. No one integrated, no one integrated the spirit of prayer and giving into advancing God's mission to save the lost more than Lottie Moon, this, this four-foot-three giant of a lady whose name, whose real name was Charlotte Diggs Moon. She was born in Virginia on December the 12th, 1840. Before long, Charlotte picked up the nickname Lottie. Lottie. And uh, her family was thoroughly Baptist and financially wealthy, giving her access to education and other girls did not have. She attended the Virginia Female Seminary at uh, age 14, and then the Al Marley uh, Female Institute at 17, becoming proficient in Greek, Latin, Italian, French, and Spanish, taking up Hebrew as well. By the time she finished school, Pastor John Broadus called her the most educated woman in the South. But while her mind was strong, while her mind was strong, her heart was sinful. As a matter of fact, she gave herself her middle name of devil. She said, my, my middle name is devil, D. When she was 18, Pastor John Broadus held a series of evangelistic meetings at the church near the school. Well, Lottie wasn't interested in going to this evangelistic meeting, but her friends prayed specifically for her by name until one night she decided to attend the meetings in order to mock what was really happening. That night, December 21st, 1858, Lottie Moon gave her, her life to Christ, and she was born again. 
Her zeal for God just grew as her desire to teach, so she moved to Danville, Kentucky, where she taught at an all-girls school. While there, Lottie met G.W. Burton and A.B. Cambinus, former Southern Baptist missionaries to China. By the time she moved with her friend Anna Safford to Cartersville, Georgia, to start a, a girls' school, she was giving money regularly to what was known then as the Foreign Missions Board. Olati's well, interest in China grew and increased as she began to give financial support to a girls' school run by Martha Crawford, a Southern Baptist missionary in northern China. The unexpected happened when Lottie's beloved sister, Edmonia, who was 11 years younger than she, than Lottie, her younger sister was approved to go as a single missionary to North China. Oh, this marked a watershed change in the Foreign Missions Board, which is now the International Missions Board. Their policy changed. Edmonia wrote to Lottie, just urging urging her older sister to join her on the field. Edmonia said, I cannot convince myself that it is the will of heaven that you shall not come. I should write this to Pastor Mark. I cannot convince myself that it is the will of God that you shall not come. True, you're doing a noble work at home, but are there not somebody else who could fill your place? I don't know anyone who could fill the place offered you here. Well, her younger sister's appeal was followed by a sermon preached by Lottie's pastor, John Broadus. At the Cartersville Baptist Church, his text was John 4.35, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white, ready to harvest. When the sermon ended, Lottie left her front pew, where Pastor Mark's sitting right now. She went to her room where she prayed until the afternoon, and it was settled. God's call to Lottie Moon to China, to go to China, was as clear as a bell, she said. Lottie applied and quickly approved for missionary service in North China. She immediately turned her hand to one of the most important tasks that would mark the entirety of her ministry there in China. She mobilized churches and Christians by writing countless letters and articles that promoted missions. Even before she left for China, she wrote a letter to the Foreign Missions Board to distribute to all the churches. She wrote, young brothers and sisters, can you... Knowing the loud call for laborers in the foreign fields, can you settle down with your home pastorates? Wow. So many could be found to fill your places at home, but so few volunteer for the foreign work. She's writing this to seminary students. For women, too. Foreign missions open a sphere of labor and furnish opportunities for good which angels might almost envy. The angels envy this calling. 
Lottie continued that practice of using her gifts of words to mobilize, saying, write, write at least half an hour each day. Write constantly to America to tell them of the need for these people, these dear people, for the cause of Christ. Well, Moon, Lottie Moon was appointed missionary to China in 1872. She was one of the first unmarried women to be sent by the Southern Baptist Convention Foreign Missions Board. Her entire 40-year career was spent in northern China, first in Tengchao and then to Pingtu. Lottie's initial reception by the Chinese was less than welcoming. Well, she and the other missionaries, you know what they were called by the Chinese back then? They were, called, they were being called foreign devils. Foreign devils. When Lottie had learned enough Chinese, she threw it back at them. She said, if I'm a devil, if I am a devil, what are you? <laughs> we are all from the first great ancestor, she says. Oh, they poked and they prodded her. They asked if she were a man. When she said no, they asked, well, why, why are you not married? Lottie answered, mothers-in-law, mothers-in-law are too hard to get along with. I'm afraid they will beat me. <laughs> that answer always broke the cultural ice with great laughter. Well, first, Lottie applied herself to learning Chinese and then to teaching at a girls' school. Her heart could not rest in teaching just a few dozen girls while surrounded by millions of women and children who had never heard the gospel. She found her true calling when she was invited by Sally Holmes to accompany her on a country picnic, which was really an evangelistic trip to surrounding villages to share the gospel with anyone who would listen. Lottie wrote home, said, she said this, The needs of these people press upon my soul, and I cannot be silent. It is grievous to think of these human souls going down to death without even one opportunity of hearing the name of Jesus. As a single woman on the mission field in the 1800s, life was very difficult, to put it mildly. When she was asked if she had ever been in love, she said, Yes, yes, but God had first claim on my life. And since the two conflicted, there can be no question about the result. Lottie Moon's decisive stand did not free her from the inevitable result, which many, many of our single missionaries struggle with, which is loneliness. Lottie later lamented, I hope no missionary will ever be as lonely as I have ever been. Her most conspicuous contributions, however, were her challenge to Southern Baptist women to form their own missionary organization for the support and promotion of foreign missions and her admonition to young women to heed the call to China and that wish would come to fruition when the Southern Baptist Convention's uh, Women's Missionary Union came to reality. Her constant stream of letters and articles appealing for more recruits and financial support prompted Southern Baptist women to initiate an, an annual Christmas offering for foreign missions in 1888, an offering later named for Moon 
for Lottie Moon, which grew from initial $3,000 to more than $82 million in 1993. You ask me, well, Doug, uh, 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 Elder Doug, how do we come up with the goal of $3,000 every year for Lottie Moon uh, missions offering? This is where I got it from. It's the initial goal that was set in 1888 was $3,000. That's where I got the 3000 okay? Her impact on IMB board policy was extraordinary and excluded her advocacy for women to be utilized as missionary evangelists, for newly appointed missionaries to be involved in missions work immediately rather than waiting to complete uh, language study, and for establishing regular furloughs for all missionaries. Her deep respect and belief in the ability of the Chinese people was in sharp contrast to the attitude of some of her colleagues. It is comparatively easy to give oneself to, one, to mission work, she once said, but it is not easy to give oneself to an alien people. Yet the latter is much better and truer work than the former. Moon chided, she chided Southern Baptists for their doctrinal disputes, the inconsistency of their sending missionaries to Africa while oppressing or ignoring blacks in the United States, and their meager interest in support of foreign missions. Forty years of such admonitions and appeals finally got to the board. <laughs> and the Southern Baptist Convention became one of the leading missionary sending bodies in the world. Still, still do so today. By 1912, Lottie Moon was 72 years old. Her health was in very serious decline. Her physical and mental health had been broken by overworking in the field and the pressing needs of the famine-stricken people of Shandong. She survived the Boxer Rebellion. She gave almost all of her money and food to the Chinese. She even stopped eating altogether. She loved the Chinese people, and they loved her back. But one of the missionary doctors decided Lottie must return to America if she was going to live. She must return to America to re regain her health. Sadly, Lottie Moon never saw America because she never reached the shores of America. She died in the harbor of Kobe, Japan on Christmas Eve, 1912, on a ship. In her final hours, she sang, Jesus Loves Me with the missionary nurse who accompanied her. Lottie made one final gesture, pushing her fists together in the form of a Chinese greeting. She was welcoming some unseen guests. She passed into the presence of the Savior who loved her and whose name she had made known. She had fully given her life to Christ and to the spread of his gospel. Lottie Moon's life is an example that inspires us to live for what truly matters. And if we have that second video clip, feel free to play it, Brother Clyde. From, this is from uh, Nick and Rainey's team in Myanmar.
telling you what they do. So at Uptown Baptist Church, our church plays a vital role in reaching every people. We can engage in prayer and giving towards that goal. As I said during the offering time, as we get ready to celebrate Advent here in the States, I would encourage you to give towards the Lottie Moon Missions offering. Do something different this Christmas. Sacrifice a present or two. Give towards this mission offering, uh, this year's mission offering, above your regular tithes, whether you choose to give online or drop it off at church or in the mail. Designate that extra donation towards the Lottie Moon Missions offering. Our church goal this year is $3,000. Again, that, that was a goal set in 1888 for the Foreign Missions Board. That is a small amount compared to how much the Lord has blessed us as a church family this year during the pandemic. So I would encourage everyone to give and pray to support our 4,000-plus international missionaries around the, the world. I will uh, say a prayer now for our international friends. Brother Mike Choby is going to lead us in the closing song, and Pastor Mark will have a few announcements, and we'll go. Heavenly Father, thank you for laying out the vision this morning. In Matthew, the Great Commission, Matthew 24, 14, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, as well in, as in Acts 13 and in Isaiah. Thank you for laying out the vision for us. As your prophet Isaiah said, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, a light will shine on them, Lord. And as we see that video, we see that Buddhist temple just covered in billions of dollars of gold. And we see the giant, the giant statues of Buddha. Our hearts are broken, Lord. Our hearts are broken for the people of Yangon, Myanmar. As they walk in darkness, Lord, as they live in a dark land, we pray, we pray that you would make Nick and Rainey, our teams there in Yangon, instruments of your light, grace, and truth. And we pray that for all of our international friends who are laboring in closed and open cultures, closed and open countries with different languages and cultures to learn. We pray for your grace, for your grace, for your mercy upon them, Lord. And we pray that you, as the God of hope, would give them peace and joy, and that the power of your Holy Spirit would give them abundant hope. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to speak to us during this Advent season, Lord. Open our mouths to, to, to speak and declare the good news boldly with those around us, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends and family members, who desperately need, need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.